AIM is a podcast that connects women who are eager to grow in their relationship with God, living out the living word of God each day. The following episode represents the opinions of the AIM hosts and their guest speakers. The following discussion should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only, and because each person is so unique, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. In no way does listening to our content establish a doctor-patient relationship. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast are our own, and while we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or correction of errors. Thank you. Welcome back, everyone. Maria here. Natalie. And Marina. And we have an extremely special guest joining us today. I am so excited to have her on board and to listen to all the amazing insight that she will share with us. Uh, so without further ado, let's begin by introducing our guest. Uh, today joining us is Dr. Marina Abdelmalik, who is a family physician in Mississauga, Ontario. She recently completed her residency um, Uh, at the University of Toronto, and that's also where she obtained her medical degree. She also holds a nursing degree from McMaster University, and she's the author of a book titled Recipe for Recovery. It's a book based on her own experience battling an eating disorder, and it was written to help others and inspire readers to break the stigma associated with illness and to really seek help. She has a blog titled anorexiarecovery1.blogspot.com. And as always, this will be mentioned on our website as well. So please make sure to go uh, and visit there. And uh, we are so excited to have her on board. We're so excited to speak about her book. And that will be in our next episode. This episode, we're going to continue with our mental health series, and we will focus on anxiety and depression. And uh, Dr. Abdelmalik has a passion for medical education, for patient empowerment, and raising awareness about mental illness and the relationship of mental illness with emotional and physical health. So uh, we were so excited to to have her on board. We were so excited that she was encouraged to come and, and to join us. So thank you again, Dr. Malik. And uh, let's start. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's um, I'm really proud of the work you guys are doing. And uh, it's so good to be able to speak openly about these things, um, you know, and empowering other people. So thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. Um, so the first question we want to do, and that's something we, we want to do in every episode is, uh, to just define what we're talking about. So Dr. Abdelmalik has a very uh, excellent talent of summarizing and, and simplifying things very simply for us medical students and for everyone listening. Um, so in Dr. Malik words, uh, please define for us anxiety and depression in clinical terms and maybe just tell us also what the differences are. Sure. Yeah, I think that's a good question. And I think um, you actually mentioned it in your question, um, the differences between anxiety and depression. So as we know, anxiety and depression are mental health issues. Um, And I think even before I get into that, I want to also make a distinction between feeling sad and being depressed, or feeling worried and having an anxiety, because I think that a lot of the times, um, like, unfortunately, we, re- we really use these words very lightly. So for example, mm-hmm. like, oh, my God, I had the worst day ever. I'm so depressed. Or, oh, you know, I am, you know, it's okay to say like, I am super anxious, but I think we use these words almost lightly. And we really need to understand the impact of them. So mm-hmm. by definition, if we're going, you know, by the book, um, the diagnostic statistic manual is the kind of psychological psychiatry criteria for diagnosing mm-hmm. mental health disorders. So we'll start with depression. So according to the book, depression is um, a bunch of symptoms 
symptoms for, you know, to save time. It's basically feeling down most days rather than not feeling like you have no energy. You're having difficulty sleeping, maybe changes in your weight and appetite. And that usually needs to last for more than two weeks consistently with the majority of it with those symptoms. So that's clinical depression. It's very different than say having, you know, a couple of days where you're just feeling under the, like under the weather and struggling. So that's clinical depression Yeah, and anxiety. Also, you might be feeling down, but the prominent symptoms are more this worry. You have this excessive worry about too many things, about several things at once. That worrying is causing an impairment in function. So again, it's very different when you say are studying for upcoming finals or applying to programs or preparing for a wedding and you're just super anxious. That's kind of a temporary adjustment that you're going to make and things will pass. The difference becomes when those symptoms prolong or when it starts to enroach on your daily functioning to a point where you are almost incapacitated. That might be where we would say an anxiety. And of course, between both disorders, there are subtypes, which is probably way more than we need to know for this podcast. But for example, some people can have general anxiety where they're literally worried about so many things at once. Some people might have social anxiety where they're specifically super anxious around being uh, being around people. So there's different subtypes of, um, of both disorders. Similarly with depression, you might have primarily symptoms of depression where you're mostly down all day, every day. Um, but you're a hyper anxious subtype. So that's really getting into the clinical aspect, which I think kind of highlights why we need people to be educated and why you need to do this with a healthcare team. You shouldn't be doing it in isolation, diagnosing yourself, um, because really the what you're diagnosed with and what you kind of seek treatment for is going to impact how you improve. Yeah, I totally agree. That's super insightful. And I think that's one of the goals that we wanted for this series to make sure that we have someone who can speak about this in clinical terms and, and from experience um, with, with patients or with clients so that they could truly shed light on, yeah, on, on the, the diagnosis of it. So thank yeah. you. I think that was a really helpful definition for me. Yeah, for me too. And also like to help us recognize the signs and symptoms um, in ourselves or others. So that's that's the next question we wanted to ask. Like, what are the early signs of anxiety? Let's start with that. Yeah, that's a good one. So we'll just, I think for today, it's probably better to talk about just general anxiety disorder, GAD, sure. um, because that's probably the most like prominent one. And I think those are the symptoms that we might um, recognize. So I think we, we all have times when we're anxious. You know, I like as myself, speaking myself, I am what you might call a perfectionist. So I like things to be done, you know, pretty well. Um, yeah. And when I am overwhelmed with too many things, I get super anxious. I'm like, oh my God, I have this to do. I have this to do. I have this to do. I can't do all of it at once. And I start to feel it in my body. I feel my heart racing. I feel my head getting light. I feel like it's kind of like I'm thinking about so many things at once. But if you ask me what I'm thinking about, I have no idea what I'm thinking about. And I think that's a pretty relatable symptom that a lot of us have. Now with generalized anxiety disorder, it becomes to a point where that's literally happening nearly every day about almost everything. So now let's say I have a test. It's normal to be anxious about it. But now let's say I'm anxious, like I'm anxious about this test. Every time my family goes out, I'm like, oh my gosh, what if something happens to them? Or I wake up in the morning and I'm just like, I don't know what I'm worried about, but I'm just worried. I just Mm. feel that pit in my stomach. It's kind of like a knot in your stomach or Mm. you're in a situation. And, you know, this is something I hear a lot from patients. I'm just having chest pain. 
Now, medically, you know, chest pain, you do have to rule out, you know, we can't just say it's anxiety. There's a lot of tests and things we need to do. But a lot of the times after you do all your medical tests and I ask a patient, I'm like, tell me about your stress. And they're like, oh my God, my stress. And you're like, you teach patients, you know, feeling your chest really flutter, feeling like you're dizzy, feeling like you're getting more headaches, feeling like you're overwhelmed. And every night you try to get your head to go to sleep, but there's just so many thoughts running in your head at one time. I would say that's a major, um, like major red flag that there's some generalized anxiety going on. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So to bounce off of that, what are early signs of depression now? That's it's, I like how we're kind of differentiating between the two because they do overlap, but while what the anxiety side, we kind of had feeling these physical symptoms and having these thoughts about worry, the depression side is kind of toned down a little bit with some sadness or what we call anhedonia. Anhedonia is the clinical word, meaning lack of motivation or pleasure out of the things that used to bring you pleasure. So for example, I used to always love, I don't know, going out with my friends and reading. And suddenly, even though like, I like these things, I just, I don't have the energy to go do them or I don't want to do them. I don't feel like they're going to be enjoyable for me. Um, I feel sad, you know, most of the time. And I have no idea why I just feel sad. My body feels heavy. You know, I'm trying to get up in the morning and I just, I can't, I wake up feeling unrefreshed. I feel like I just want to cry all the time or the opposite. I feel like I need to cry, but nothing is coming out. The tears are not coming out. Mm. I feel like I have no appetite or conversely, I feel like I'm just eating my feelings. I'm so sad and I'm just, I'm eating everything because I'm sad. Um, those are some of the main things that I would say depression. So while on, on one hand, we have anxiety is like the overthinking or just worried chronically. We have depression is the lack of pleasure from things or feeling chronically just down. Mm-hmm. If I may go slightly off script for a second, uh, you mentioned anhedonia being no longer enjoying things you used to enjoy. Um, is there a trigger for depression or anxiety? Is there something that changes that all of a sudden affects us? I think that's a good question. And there's a, there's a really biosocial model um, in medicine that I like to take patients through. So certainly risk factors for these, right? For, for any mental health condition, obviously a family history, you know, we, mm. there's good evidence to show, let's say your twin or even a sibling or a parent, or someone has some sort of mental health disorder, um, you are at higher risk. And that's like the nature nurture environment, right? Yes, there's a genetic component, but obviously if you grew up in an environment where say mom and dad were always stressing about everything, and, you know, maybe, you know, a lot of patients will tell me, like, I know that I have anxiety. And although my mom was never diagnosed with anxiety back home, I really think she's got generalized anxiety because she's always worried about everything. She's always overthinking things, you know, so these are some of the things to keep in mind. So even the environment you grow up in, if you always see, for example, um, you know, we know parents who are chronically alcoholic, you know, their kids might grow up having some depression because they grew up in an environment where they always had to stifle their feelings. They weren't encouraged to cry or express those emotions. They developed low self-esteem as they aged. Mm-hmm. But then there's also development. So, you know, time of puberty is a very anxiety producing uh, life stage. Uh, 
transitioning into university is very um, anxiety producing as well. And so you might have an anxiety where you're super worried, or you might get depressed where maybe you've made a transition and you're no longer living at home. And now you're isolated. You feel like your world has been shaken. So there's life changes, you know, there's environment, um, there's certainly genetic factors. So I don't, I, when I talk to patients, let's say I feel like they've been having these symptoms and I, you know, I do a screen, I'm talking to them about their mood. I will often ask, when did you first start feeling this way? Mm. Sometimes a patient will be like, you know, it was after that motor vehicle accident I had because I lost everything. And sometimes people will say, as long as I can remember, it's just, it's just been going on. So while in some cases you might have a trigger event, in most cases, it's really about digging deep and getting everything that's been contributing to it. Because I, I really think it's difficult for a patient or even a clinician to identify, yep, it was the day that, for example, for me, it was the day I decided to lose weight where I developed my eating disorder. I don't really think it happened like that. I think it was a series of things that played into it at once. Yeah. That's so interesting that, you know, you have that sit down discussion with the patient and discussing like what, what are the underlying factors that might have contributed to anxiety or depression that you're experiencing today. Um, so on that note, who, who can we reach out to, to kind of have that kind of conversation with? Yeah, that's an excellent question, Marina, because nice name, by the way, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> like it, you so too. super creative <laughs> stellar name too. Um, I love that we're having these conversations because a lot of us struggle in silence. Mm-hmm. And the problem is mental health is out there, right? Where maybe before we were quieter about it. Now we're making headway, right? Like now I, I do see the, the community starting to talk a little bit more about mental health. We see, um, you know, organizations starting to promote it. We have Bell Let's Talk Day, but let's be honest, we still have so much more way to go. And there's so much stigma associated with mental health. Um, a lot of people think that having a mental health disorder means that there's something wrong with them. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, and I get this, honestly, on nearly every patient that I have a discussion with, I don't want to be on a pill because I don't want something to change the chemicals inside of me. I don't want to depend on a pill to help me with my mood, or I don't want to go to therapy. Therapy is for people with issues. So there's, I think there's still so much stigma associated with dealing with this stuff, with dealing with depression, with dealing with anxiety. And that causes people to question if they're actually like feeling these things, or if it's just you know, it, maybe it's just something wrong with them or to suffer in silence, which inevitably only leads to downturning of their symptoms. So what I would say is it takes a lot of strength, an incredible amount of strength to really reflect with yourself and identify, am I feeling a certain way that's just not sitting right with me? So for example, you know, you have to sit down with yourself and say, look, I like, I'm just, I'm not happy, right? I feel like there's so much going on in my life right now and not question it. A lot of people will say, of course, there's going along with my life. You know, I'm in university. I'm stressed. Everyone around me is stressed. How come, you know, like, why should I be the one who can't control this? Everybody else is doing fine. So people start to compare. People start to say, no, there's nothing wrong. It's just a stage I'm going through or, oh, everybody else around me is like this. And they don't feel safe. Say, bring it up with their family. Maybe that's because, you know, they live in a culture where, mental health isn't talked about. Um, Like going to my example before, you know, people were saying, like some patients go, oh, you know, my dad was always, you know, crying in his room, but nobody ever talked about it. I'm pretty sure he had depression, right? Or on the converse side, 
you know, I can't talk to my, you know, to my siblings that I'm feeling anxious about this all day because like, we just don't talk about feelings in my house. And that's a very, very common statement. So people end up feeling that there's something wrong with them or that they can't talk about it because of that stigma, because nobody will believe them. Why are you going through this stuff? Be a man, be a girl, take it easy. Yeah. So you have to, you have to say, look, I don't feel well. Who can I talk to? And you have to reach out to safe people. I always tell the students that I teach, you have to find your people. And when you find your people, you're going to have different groups of people. You are going to have your study buddies who are only your study buddies and only the people you study with. And those are not your safe people to talk to about like mental health and life. They are like strictly for studying because not everyone's going to express the same like experiences as you. Then you're going to have your people, people and your people, people are the people that you can talk to about anything. They don't need to give you advice. They just need to pretty much shut their mouths and just listen for a little bit. Yeah. So once you find those people, I think that's the first step. And then you need to also have your, you know, your advisors, some types of advisors, you know, we have spiritual advisors, like, you know, for us, for me personally, like the priests in our church community, absolutely wonderful spiritual advisors, loving fathers who genuinely care and are so educated in popular culture to be able to explain things to us and to guide us to resources. So I would say reach out to, you know, Abuna spiritual advisors, family if you have family members who are supportive, they don't have to have the answers. So when I was struggling, I will talk about this next time, but when I was struggling with my eating disorder, my family was not educated about eating disorders at all. Like they just, they, they did not know what an eating disorder was. Um, and it was difficult reaching out to my family because I felt like they would backlash at me. So in that, like now, thank God, thank God they're educated. We can talk about anything. So now when I'm having a bad day, I'll go, you know, I'll go to my mom and say, listen, mom, just like, I am not feeling myself. And I don't want you to give advice. I just want you to listen. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's the best thing that friends and family members can do. Now, granted, if those friends and family members think you're at risk, they should probably throw in a little piece of advice there. But sometimes you just need somebody to, to make space for your feelings. And then there's more of the professional help. So anyone who's struggling, you need to seek professional help. If that's a family doctor that you're comfortable with, reach out to them. If it's going online to a support group, like depending on your age. So for example, kids helpline, they're great. There's a really good resource called good to talk. That's for teens, anyone younger than 18. I think a lot of people don't know about that confidential helplines where you can literally talk to somebody who has no idea who you are just about your feelings. And these are trained social workers. And then there's some like free apps that you can actually do with some parental consent, depending on the age to kind of reach out and, and get that step. Cause the first step is really being yourself and not being afraid to tell your story that look, I, I, actually I'm not okay. And it's 155% okay to not be okay. So I have a follow-up to that. Like you mentioned, it's kind of a touchy subject for our culture, um, mostly because it's not, it, it hasn't been a subject touched upon until very recently. And so how do you suggest that we bring this up and start educating them? Because I, I also don't think that there necessarily has to, you don't have to be suffering from something in order for them to start um, learning about this and learning that it's a real thing. I think that the, a, a big problem and a, a big reason why a lot of people tend to push their possible diagnoses to the side is because they don't think it'll be taken seriously or they think that if they talk to their 
parents, for example, they'll just tell them like, I can only think of the word in Arabic, like middala, like yeah, you need to like, like you're dramatic or you're taking things Yeah, you're being risk. dramatic or yeah, 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 yeah. Or this is you're just in your teenage years or whatever. Yeah, it's a so, stage you're going through. It's a mm-hmm. stage. So how how do you suggest that we begin educating? So it's a very good question. Um, so I will tell you personally, I have never uh, like struggled with clinical depression and anxiety, but certainly in my days struggling with the eating disorder. Oh my goodness. Like I'm pretty sure I probably met the criteria for probably depression. Cause I just, I just felt awful. I didn't want to be around anyone and I hated everything in life that was secondary to my eating disorder, but still. And I think the, the important thing, um, which I really, I really hope we can change in our culture. And I do see a lot of us making progress specifically like God bless our our priests and our servants who are, you know, making mental health more prominent, having these discussions Um, to not be educated is arrogance, right? So I'll give an example. I in no way know like anything about cars and whatsoever, but I always see on the news, this thing called Tesla and their stocks. And I'm like, okay, I just need to know what the heck a Tesla is because I need to be updated. So I go and, you know, I figure out that a Tesla is a really expensive car who's owned by some Elon Musk or something like that, something like that. So you don't have to be like genuinely like entwined in something to be educated, nor do you have to be educated. Like I'm not expecting our entire community to like name me the DSM criteria and all of these resources. But I think you need to be aware of some key things. For example, you need to be aware that when you know your um, sibling or your spouse or your parent, whoever, when someone comes up to you and they're just, they're down all the time and they go, you know, she just looked at me weird. Do you think this person's looking at me weird? Do you think, well, do you think it's safe to go? What if we all get COVID? Or someone who used to come out with you all the time and now suddenly has disappeared from the face of the earth and you have no idea what's going on with them. And every time you talk to them, they just, you know, maybe they, maybe they don't take care of themselves anymore. Maybe they don't look like, you know, that fancy Nancy that you always used to see every Friday for church meeting, for example, you need to be able to pick up on, okay, I don't know what this is. Like, I don't know the depression. I don't know this thing's anxiety, but there's something going on here and approach it in a sensitive manner. And if you don't know how to approach it in a sensitive manner, reach out to somebody who confidentially can help you with that. So I think that's the base, like the number one thing to be educated about, honestly, for mental health is it's okay to not be okay and not to write off feelings. A lot of us brush off emotions because we're scared. We're scared of what those emotions mean. So, you know, let's say somebody is just feeling sad all the time. No, no, I, you know, this can't be a problem because, you know, that doesn't happen in my family or like we're Egyptian, you know, we, we, we don't, we don't have depression. We don't have an anxiety. We're just really determined to get things done. We're hard workers. Um, or, you know, like, well, nobody in my family has that. So like, why am I the odd one out? So the first step is making space for emotions, making space for the fact that look, emotions are real. Mental health is a real thing. And it is an health issue. It is not something wrong with you. And I think when people begin to understand that, even if parents begin to understand that, that's the first step, because then even if they don't know what to do, they can make space for the person suffering that look, you're suffering. It's okay. We're going to get you through it. Every day might not be easy, but you will get through this. Creating a space of safety is the best thing you can do for anyone. Yeah, I I completely agree. I actually have a follow-up uh, question to that. So you're saying like processing emotions can be scary and realizing that, hey, I might need to reach out to somebody that can be a scary process for someone. So do you have any tips for like 
um, how to sit down with yourself and kind of process those emotions head on and address these things. And I think that in itself can be a really traumatic and scary process too, or just confusing, right? Like you can imagine if someone's like super anxious to ask them to like reflect on what's making them anxious, it's going to cause them more anxious, right? So I, uh, what I often tell people is I want you to come talk to me about stress, about life, about what's going on. And I, I think the biggest message I could give to people who are listening to this podcast is if something doesn't feel okay, reach out to someone who you know can just listen and help you process through that. You should not be doing that on your own because you will probably get lost in your own thoughts at that point. Um, Once you start working with someone, like what I often do with my patients is, you know, they'll come in, they'll tell me, oh, you know, Dr. Malik, I I just don't feel okay. Every day I'm crying. I'm thinking about way too many things and I'm not getting anything done. I don't know what's wrong with me. That's so common. And so then we start working together and maybe I'll give them some homework, like, okay, this week, I want you to identify your triggers this week. I want you to identify your thoughts, but that's only under my guidance because on their own, it's difficult when you're already overwhelmed and feeling awful, you cannot be expected to kind of heal yourself at the same time. Right? So if that's making an appointment with your doctor, it is. If that's finding a doctor who you can talk to, um, that's it too. If it's maybe you have no idea who to go to, so you need to ask your, you know, your spiritual father or maybe somebody for recommendations, that's what you would do too. What I would discourage everybody from doing is Googling. Mm-hmm. I know that the internet is widely available and sometimes the internet is a very good resource. However, sometimes the resource um, that we access are not always so great. Uh, We might end up reading stories about people who, you know, like there's all these horror stories. Like people come to me and they're like, I saw somebody online with this medication that you gave me and they said it gave them X, Y, Z. How come you're prescribing it to me? You know, or, oh, I read online that people with anxiety always need this blood test ordered. How come you didn't do it? So you, we need reputable sources here. And if you don't have reputable sources, what you can do is go on a medical website and maybe learn about your symptoms. So you can see that you're not alone. Um, or you can reach out to say like a priest or your community and say, Hey, look, do you know a good social worker who could help me out with this? Do you know a good psychotherapist who might be able to help me with this condition and is seeing patients now? Yeah. Those are really practical. And I, I, I find those to be helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So many takeaways actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's loaded. Well, I apologize if it's a lot yeah. of information. No, I no, I don't apologize at all. Step, the first step is know that it's okay to not be okay, right? Like you're not destined to go through these feelings on your own, nor should you. And number two is make sure you seek out a reputable and supportive source of help. That's like the big two keys that I would take away for any of this. Yeah, Yeah, I totally agree. I think you, you mentioned many times that you hear what is wrong with me. And in our community, we hear it as in like, no, we're Egyptian. We shouldn't struggle Mm -hmm. with this, but also like, you shouldn't be struggling with this as a true Christian. If you were truly praying, if you had strong faith. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I I had a question for you about our, our generation today. Why, why does it seem that anxiety and depression are so prevalent today? That's a good question. And you touched on something that about the religious, which I I want Hmm. to get back to. So if I forget, please remind me. Um, But that question, you know, I mean, this little thing called COVID has kind of, you know, (laughs) rocked over our lives for the past two years. And we're seeing an increase of depression and anxiety, even in little kids. Like I have 
my goodness, I have like four or five year olds that have been terrified to go back to school um, because they've been isolated for so long, you know, and even, you know, there's there's so much increase in mental health issues because the pandemic has not only caused some social isolation, but it's, it's literally changed the way we live our lives. And I think on one hand, that's exasperated existing mental health concerns. So, you know, if you're already anxious before this, and now suddenly, you know, you lost all human contact when you were just starting to get comfortable around, you know, giving oral presentations, that could obviously make your anxiety worse. On the other hand, um, we're seeing people who, you know, were very happy before and suddenly, you know, maybe they've lost their jobs because of the pandemic. Maybe, you know, they really thrived on going to class and seeing their peers in person. And now they're just stuck in their home doing online classes. So these are kind of triggers or, um, for lack of better words, like pushers towards suffering with mental health issues. But I think the other thing too, um, I would be very arrogant not to highlight substance abuse. So, you know, we do know that using alcohol and marijuana and smoking, these are all triggers uh, for mental health issues. Those substances temporarily make us feel better because they numb our emotions or they give us a high. Um, but in the long term, they do really dim down your mood and cause um, and anxiety and depression. So there is a rise in substance abuse and those do go together with mental health concerns. Um, and, and I think, you know, social media is a big player. Um, media in general, you know, right now, I'm like, I am not old, but there are a lot of, you know, social media things that I have no idea what they even are. Like a while ago, there was this thing called Snapchat that was like, I don't know, you had like a disappearing message. And today there's these things called TikTok videos. And I don't even know what the next thing is. So there's a lot of social media and social media, while good for many different reasons, you know, so uh, information, social connection, long distance relationships, um, causes a lot of comparison. Some people have a need to show, you know, what they ate for dinner every night and show me how beautiful your clothes are every day and how fancy your life is. The reality is we only show on social media what we want to show. Um, we don't see the other sides and that causes comparison. We like often, you know, let's say you were, I think it's called doom scrolling, right? You're scrolling. Um, people will post what they want you to see. So, you know, someone's posting, hooray, I just got engaged. They're not posting. I just had a breakdown last night because I failed my exam, you know, mm -hmm. or conversely, someone's posting, um, you know, all about their great meals and they're not posting. Well, I've actually been starving all day and this is my one meal of the day, for example. So we're only, you know, we're, we're comparing a lot on social media. Um, we're also having a lot of commenting, trolling, right? People are really mm -hmm. leaving some arrogant comments on. And, you know, we do say, you know, sticks and stones can break your bones, but words can never hurt you. That's such a lie. Words hurt so much. Bullying hurts. Um, call it whatever you want. You're never too old to be a bully or to get bullied. So I think all of these things are, are really contributing to the increase and rise of mental health concerns today. Great point. Yeah, I think social media is a big player. Um, I agree. With, it's uh, I think even if you're not suffering from clinical depression, anxiety, it, it can still impact you. Um, so because we don't want to forget about touching on this religious aspect oh, yeah. of it. Um, what is the, the intersection between this mental health disorder and being like a good Christian and yeah. the stigma that lies there? It's a very good question, you know, um, like, so I'll, I'll say like a common Arabic thing that I hear my patients come up uh, and, and say, they'll be like, you know, whenever I tell my parents or whenever I tell my spouse, they go, Sally, you know, pray, 
you know مش بتروحي الكنيسه مش بتتناولي you don't go to church you don't take communion like absolutely not right Jesus cried in the Bible, right? We know when Lazarus died and Jesus wept. Now, I'm not saying Jesus had depression, but I'm saying he showed his emotions, right? Um, God gave us emotions for a reason. Your emotions are not wrong. It's just how you act on them. So God gave us psychologists. He gave us social workers. He gave us antidepressants, right? Like these are, there are tools for help. We would be very arrogant to say that having a mental health concern means you are far away from God. Conversely, you know, do we say with everybody with diabetes, you know, in, in Arabic, it's, it's sukkar. Do we say like, well, you know, like we don't say that. So how come it's okay to suffer from something physical, something tangible? Is that why? Because it's tangible. Um, so I, I think this is, this is a big problem that we need to address. Having a mental health concern by no means makes you not a good Christian. Maybe, maybe it does mean that you have fallen away from God and maybe your spiritual life needs some strengthening so that you can recover a bit faster or at least have your spiritual arm um, contributing to, to arm you against those difficult thoughts and that and anxiety. You know, so for example, people who are anxious, um, even if you don't have clinical anxiety or depression, when you read a beautiful Psalm, putting in the plug for Psalm 91, which is my favorite yes. mom. I recite it every single morning before going to work. That really gives me a lot of peace, right? Yeah. So you certainly use your religious and spiritual resources to help you with your general mood. Your mood and mental health might be a wake-up call that maybe one of the aspects in your life needs attention, which is your spiritual life. But that does not mean that it is a lack of spirituality that caused you to fall into this. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. I love the way that you put them. Yeah. Very passionate about that. (laughs) Yes. And it's an important topic because we need to feel comfortable to reach out when we need it. And so that brings me to my next question. Would you say that the diagnoses of anxiety or depression are somewhat preventable or is it in our control uh, to an extent? You did mention um, kind of trigger points and um, you know, initial symptoms that you see. So is it possible that one can control these things once you start to sense that you're experiencing those symptoms? Yeah. So the word control is, I think, a very strong word. And I think Mm -hmm. we use it very lightly. Mm -hmm. So, um, I'm going to kind of rephrase and answer your question at the same time. I think we can prevent some things from getting out of hand. And I think there are certain interventions that we can do that might cause early intervention to occur. But I don't think that there is like, so for example, if you have a a nice, you know, friendly mama and baba home and everybody loves each other and everybody talks about their emotions and then suddenly somebody ends up having an anxiety or depression, you know, Mm. so is, was there something we could have done to prevent this? You know, maybe not, but are there some things you can do to prevent things from getting out of hand or to intervene early? Absolutely. Early identification. That's why I say, if you're struggling, you get help, right? You are preventing it from getting worse. If you are um, noticing somebody else go through symptoms, speak out, you are early, um, you are identifying things early and intervening. But I hesitate to say prevent because, you know, you, you like the last thing I want is a, a patient or a family to go, I've been doing everything right. 
So why am I still struggling? And I think that ties into why people say, what's wrong with me? I have the perfect life. I have a good, happy husband. I have the perfect kids. So what's wrong with me? Right. So that's why I I don't want to say prevention. I do want to say early intervention and prevention of things getting worse. So I don't want to sound like, you know, a Debbie Downer, like, oh, there's nothing you can do to prevent. That's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is when we say, can we prevent mental health disorders from occurring? I think it's, it's almost making people who are currently suffering from them feel like there is definitely something wrong with me now. And I made a mistake and my family made a snake. And this is why I'm here. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think like we can say that there, like there's ways to intervene in an early stage, like you said, but saying that it's preventable does make it feel like, you know, like I'm the outcast, I'm the outlier. Yeah. Um, and it's not something that anyone can experience. Although like, you know, prevent, yes. You know, for example, does expressing your emotions at home and making that space, can that help prevent mental health disorders? It probably can, right? Um, maybe not all of them. And if somebody develops a disorder, that doesn't mean you didn't, you know, talk about your feelings enough, but there's certainly protective factors, right? So there's always yeah. predisposing factors like, you know, uh, family history, like not being able to talk about emotions, like drug use. Those are predisposing. They predispose you to developing a disorder. Then there's protective factors, which we always talk about. I talk about that with my patients. So yes, You might have grown up in a family where you weren't allowed to talk your emotions. You might be living alone and now you feel super anxious and isolated. But what's good? Like, what are your resources? So that might be now you have a great community that you can talk to. Now you're also eating better and exercising and that's helping you. Now you are also feeling in a safe space. So those are protective factors. So I definitely think we, we do need to look at protective factors because those can prevent maybe exasperations. Yeah. So would you say like developing a a good social support network would, you know, help be like, would be considered a protective factor? Absolutely. I think one thing that our society really needs to work on is boundaries. And that's why I always tell my medical students, find your people, right? If you are friends with like 10,000 people on Facebook and you are scrolling all day, every day, or opening, you know, your Instagram multiple times and looking at people's stories and commenting, or you're, you know, you're, peer group is a group that's always, oh, I got, you know, an A plus on this. What did you get? Probably not a helpful environment around you. So you really need to, you know, you need to unfriend or unfollow people who are not adding to your life. Um, And that's okay. You know, if you are able to put in healthy boundaries, your life and health will thank you for it a lot. Yeah. Which is not easy. I say that as if it's the easiest thing to do because it is, I know how hard it is to let go of toxic people. Nobody is saying slam the door in the face of a friend and be like, you're contributing to negative mental health. Get out of here. No one's saying it like that, but maybe it does mean that, you know, the friend who always comes and tells you, oh my God, I've had the worst day ever. And it's not even like a genuine conversation. It's actually just adding stress. Maybe you need to reach out to that friend and say, Hey, look, I realize that you need to talk to somebody right now, but I'm just, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to be emotionally there for you. Can we talk about this Mm -hmm. later? Or can you find somebody who can help you better? Because right now I just can't give you my all, you know? So there are ways that you need to protect yourself. Yeah. Like I think, yeah. And I think it takes a lot of courage. I feel like this whole journey is, it takes a lot of courage to admit to yourself that maybe we need to seek help and then to also kind of, make the boundaries and the necessary steps. Um, 
but yeah, uh, I think that's why these conversations are really helpful. Another question we had was, we we spoke about the relationship or kind of the uh, interplay between some mental health disorders. So we wanted to talk about how maybe having depression does it influence anxiety disorders and vice versa? And how does maybe having one exacerbate the other? Because I think sometimes we have maybe a wrong misconception that having one diagnosis makes me immune to having another one. Is that true? And if not, yeah, that's a good question. And that's why I think um, working with a physician is super important. And also even about the diagnosis part, like some patients will be like, I'm depressed and I'm anxious you know, what's wrong with me again, the what's wrong with me. And honestly, you don't, I, I always tell people you don't need to be diagnosed with something to be struggling. So like so many patients will be like, I've had anxiety all my life, but not formally diagnosed, which is cool. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about it now. Right. And sometimes, like you said, patients will come with so many symptoms. The, the big thing I'm seeing now is people are saying, I think I have ADHD. I can't concentrate. I'm thinking about too many things at once. I have to have ADHD. And so I sit with them, not just once over a series of appointments. And we talk about things and the person doesn't really have ADHD. They're just super anxious about all the work that they have to do. And so they can't concentrate because they have way too many things to do. And they're always worried about everything. So while on one hand, they might have ADHD and anxiety, which are concurrent or co-occurring disorders. Sometimes it's just the diagnosis or the symptoms are so unclear because there's too much happening at once. And so we need to really tease out what's happening. That's why you need professional help. Because the last thing I want is somebody to think, oh, I I only have depression. When really, maybe they have some post-traumatic stress disorder as well. They have some trauma in their lives. And they're not getting the right help or therapy for that. I also don't want somebody to say, oh, you know what? I have ADHD and an anxiety when really it might just be one or the other. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think like I think some people who maybe don't acknowledge um, the reality of mental health will will use that as kind of a devil's advocate argument of like, okay, but all the, di- not all, but like many of the diagnoses are very kind of fluid or they're confused with each other or someone will tell you that I'm like informally this or that. Um, but I think what you said really helps respond to this because it could be an interplay, it could be one factor influencing the other. But yeah, because it's not tangible, I think it it does need a conversation and it does need a professional help. Absolutely. And, and I, and I will add to that, um, Maria, like it's, I very rarely have these conversations, like never have I ever Mm. after one encounter said, yep, your diagnosis is depression. Like, even if I do my little screening, like in, you know, for depression, we have something called the PHQ nine patient health questionnaire nine for anxiety. We have the GID seven general anxiety seven, even if they score positive on that once, That's not like, you know, what I'll say to patients is, you know, on this test and I'll show them their score. It really looks like you might be struggling with depression. So let's talk about it. And then over time, you know, over a series of visits, we're kind of working off that. If patients ask me, so what's wrong with me? You know, am I depressed? I'll be like, you know, know, your scores show this and we're treating you like this because that's what we need to do. Um, But it's not, I, I, I don't think we can say it off the bat once. This needs a series of visits and assessments and conversations and treatment responses and interventions. So at the end of the day, I tell people, doesn't matter what you're because a lot of times we're looking for labels patients want a diagnosis a diagnosis mm-hmm. because they want to see it's not just in my head and they want to prove to their family or whoever look i've been diagnosed with this get off my back this is really what's happening which is fine a diagnosis is helpful sometimes because it makes patients feel less isolated 
you know, like they actually know, quote unquote, what's wrong with them. It's, you know, they have something. But a lot of the times, unfortunately, they're also used as labels. So for example, you know, I have depression. And that labels me as somebody who has to be sad all the time. And somebody who has to, you know, not feel like doing anything all the time. Somebody who's, you know, you're, you're now kind of labeled yourself and you've used your diagnosis against yourself. So sometimes if I get that vibe off a patient, I'll say, look, you don't need to define yourself by a label, right? Yep. You struggle with sad feelings. Yes. This does seem like you might have depression, but you are not depressed. They're very different, mm. right? So, you know, I struggled with an eating disorder. I was not anorexic. There's a very big difference there because your identity is your identity. It is not your li- like your label. It is not your diagnosis. Oh, I think that's so important. Yeah, because like it would be terrible for someone to feel like I am trapped in this label and I will never be able to get out of it because I've been diagnosed once and that's it. So, um, yeah, I think that's that's very hopeful like, like that's very, like a good outlook to have. I think it's interesting because we've talked, I think it was even in season one about labels and we talked yeah. about just general, like social labels, like, Oh, she's whatever name you want to give her, whatever label or whatever title you want to call these people. And we talked about how labels can trap a person in that, even if they do change, and I'm just talking on like a mere social aspect of mm-hmm. things we don't let our perception of them change because in our heads they are always going to be whatever label we give them and yeah. when we spread those labels then it further becomes that person is always going to be stuck yeah. trapped inside that label to everyone else as well and so it's now I see how that can kind of expand into even yeah. this realm Um, Absolutely not. I just, I'm just going to comment on that. Like, even when I'm talking to patients, I'm very mindful to say, are you feeling depressed? Are you feeling sad? I'm not saying, are you depressed? Right. Mm -hmm. Or like, you know, like what, like, or somebody says, you know, what conditions you have? I have an anxiety. They are not an anxiety, right? It's a very, very big difference. Yes. If you have depression, you may be struggling with ups and downs, depression all your life, but you are not identified by that right? Like, you know, some patients will be like, Oh, I'm diabetic, which is fine. Like they can say that. But most of the time, they'll say I have diabetes, right? So you are not your condition, nor should you ever be labeled and identified by that. Like I am a doctor for for sure. But that's not the only thing I am, right? I'm Marina, I'm a person, I'm a friend, I'm whatever. So it's so important for patients to get past that. I love that you are not your diagnoses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're more than that. Um, and you were created to be more than that. And like, I think it's very important to kind of remember that your potential lies outside of just one part of your life or one aspect of your life. Again, you're not just your diagnoses, but you were created to, to do so much more and to be so much more. And like, if you're just thinking, if we just think about like the people in the Bible, the characters that we know that suffered with something like off the top of my head, I think of Elijah we don't think of Elijah and think, oh, he had depression or he had anxiety. We think about Elijah, the prophet who like Hmm. did all of these fabulous things. You know what I mean? And so your potential is always greater than just one part of your life. Um, And with the right help, there's a road to recovery too. It's not just the diagnosis and we'll stop there. You know, there is, there is hope for the future. There's, there's always hope. 
always, always, always hope. And, you know, I will say, you know, what is the one stable part of your identity that never changes? It's that you are a child of God. Really, really, really. That is the one thing that no one can take away from you, right? If you're a sister, well, I'm sorry, one day you might end up losing your sibling. You know, if you are a lawyer, one day you end up losing that. Your one identity that is always rooted and stable is your identity in Christ. You are a child of God now, forever, today, tomorrow. And amazingly, you know, Jesus Christ, he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. That's the one thing that also never changes, right? So um, there is always hope. And it's it's so true, you know, in Isaiah, because you quoted Isaiah, like those who hope in the Lord, they really, truly do mount up eagles. And not every day we're eagles, right? Like some days we're not eagles. Some days we are little worms and we can do nothing. And some days we are mounting up eagles and we feel like eagles. And that's like one more thing, you know, once you started getting help, um, that doesn't mean it's going to be peachy key from there. Like, it doesn't mean, oh, great. Like I'm in treatment. And so that's sometimes people are like, I don't know what's wrong. You know, I'm taking the meds. I'm going to therapy. What? But I still feel so sad. What's wrong with me? Like life is a series of ups and downs for all of us. You know, right here, Dr. Malik is sitting here talking about, you know, depression and anxiety. And, you know, an hour later, I'm breaking down because I'm tired and all I want to do is not go to work tomorrow, for example, right? So we all have our ups and downs. We're human. We are innate beings with emotions and thoughts and, and struggles. And we are also, we are given the capacity to cry and to laugh, right? We're given the ability to suffer and soar. So I, I think that's so, so important because we really have to notice that not every day is going to be a good day. Not everybody, or not every day is going to be a bad day. And that's okay right? You showed up. Yeah. yeah. But every day you are a daughter of the king, regardless. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Yeah. So now that we're kind of ending off on this sort of uplifting mood, um, how can we as females, as sisters, break the stigma, firstly, and how do we help each other? So it um, you already touched kind of on, you know, how to help a friend if we sense that there is um, something going on, but um, how can we help in battling the stigma in general and lifting each other up as women? So I think, you, like, I mean, you said it, how can we as sisters, like, let's stop being so mean to each other, right? And for example, you know, it's it's often the simple things, right? Sometimes all it takes is the smallest act of, you know, kindness to really impact someone. And conversely, sometimes all it takes is the smallest Um, word to to tear somebody down because you don't know what everyone is struggling with right you might not think that you know commenting on my messy hair today is going to make me break down but for all you know I could have got into a car accident this morning you know my house ended up flooding and I did not have time to brush my hair before I left right Mm -hmm. so you don't know what that's going to do to me so I would say you really have to be mindful of the words you speak um, of the actions you do, of the things you don't do that can break somebody down. Because as much as you might think that it's meaningless, it might be super meaningful to somebody else. And so something I started to do, this doesn't mean like, you know, live walking on eggshells, but what it does yeah. mean is really think, really think about what you're saying before you say it. Really think about what you're doing or not doing before you do it. And sometimes it comes down to how would I treat myself or a friend in this case? So for example, if I really wish that nobody would comment on the fact that, you know, I just, you know, I'm not up with the latest trend on social media, then I'm not going to do it to somebody else. 
if I really would hate the fact that all my girlfriends are going out to a party and they didn't invite me, I'm not going to do that to her. If I don't like the fact that, you know, everyone's talking um, about me and my love life or lack of love life, I'm not going to do that to somebody else. So we really have to start being mindful. You know, if somebody did this to me, would I like it? If somebody did this to my sister or to my mom, how would I respond? Would I get defensive? Be like, oh no, she didn't. Then I'm not going to do that to somebody. Right. So as much as it is that we need to raise awareness about looking out for each other when they're struggling. Well, to, to your point, I think maybe Marina, you said before, a big way to prevent or to intervene these things is to just be kind, just be nice. Yeah. And if we notice that one of our friends is struggling, what can we do if maybe they're hesitant to reach out to somebody? Yeah. So I think creating that space to say, hey, look, you know, I don't know what you're going through, but I'm worried about you. If you ever want to talk, I'm here. And if you don't want to talk, but you look, you want to talk to somebody, I might know a few people or some places that you might feel comfortable. And that's a very good way of saying it. Non-judgmental, saying, I don't know what you're going through, or I can't imagine, but I'm here. I'm just here to listen. And again, creating that space of safety and support is probably the best thing you could do. Because sometimes People don't want to talk. They're scared to talk either because they don't know what's going on or they don't want to get help or they don't want to be judged. And creating that space non-judgmentally where you say, I'm here, sometimes sometimes that's all it takes. Yeah, I think that's so important. Yeah. Yeah. So the last thing that we wanted to ask was um, if you had any recommended resources, whether books, sermons, podcasts, whatever it is, um, things that you recommend for maybe us to put on our website and to reach out to with to other people. So there's a few good apps that I really, really like. They're free. Um, they're OHIP covered. You do need to like kind of sign up and make an account, but one of them is called Mind Beacon. Um, the other one is Ability CBT. So both of these are free OHIP covered. Use the fact that it's OHIP covered because they're actually mm-hmm. quite costly otherwise. Um, and you do online therapy with like a therapist online for free. Um, a similar one is bounce back, although I think bounce back does not have um, an app, but these are all you can self refer like you literally do it yourself amazing amazing resources for any mental health concern whether it's eating disorders depression and anxiety. So those three mind beacon ability CBT and bounce back. Um, I would also just say that. Um, uh, what is it it's called uh, and anxiety Canada great resources. Um, and there's also, um, let me just, I, it, it does have some free sheets here. Just give me a second. Um, I believe it's called Psychology Today. Psychology Today has some really, really good mental health articles. Some of them might not be relevant, um, but there's a good series of just different conditions you, you might have. And Psychology Tools. Psychology Tools is a website that's mostly geared to healthcare professionals, but it does have a bunch of worksheets that people might find helpful. I wouldn't use that on my own. I would probably use it with my therapist or doctor, but something worth noting. Yeah. Wow. These are amazing. Thank you so much. And we already jotted down, get to talk kids helpline. um, And all of these things will be linked on our website underneath uh, this episode. And so if you ever need to, use these you can just go on emisher.com um, and you will find these linked for easy access Perfect. so last last thing we will ask you to do is um, if you could please end us off in a prayer we always like to have our guest uh, speaker pray for us at the end 
Oh, wow. I don't even think I'm worthy for doing that, but <laughs> sure, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's do it. So in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Dear Lord Jesus, I really thank you so much for, you always have a way, you always have a way of bringing people together to share stories, whether it's stories of hope or of inspiration, or just to get people to talk about their experiences. And Lord God, you you always want us to be well, and you always draw us closer to you in the most remarkable ways. Dear God, I ask that anyone who's suffering, whether they be suffering from feelings of depression or anxiety, or just dealing with a difficult time right now, I ask that you give them peace. You give them peace in their hearts, and you give them your strength, your strength to reach out, to talk to somebody, to know that it's okay to not be okay. And to really, at the end of the day, feel that there is hope that though right now, you know, it might be dark, you always make the sunrise tomorrow. And though right now they may feel alone, you are always with them. And that no matter what happens, they are still your daughter, they are still belonging to you. And that just as you are the same yesterday, today and tomorrow, that they too will always be in the apple of your eye and in the palm of your hands, and that they will get better one day. And Lord Jesus, I ask that you bless and strengthen these three ladies who, who invited me today on this podcast, who are spreading your word, and that you give each and every one of your children the desire of their hearts according to your will. Amen. Whether you'd like more information on resources used in this episode, want to suggest a topic, or leave your feedback, please visit our website, emisher.com. And even if you just want to talk, feel free to reach out to one of your Eames sisters. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you're listening and follow us on our Instagram and Facebook pages.